So happy Mother's Day. May it be the best kind of day. I think Walgreens is still open, for those who maybe have forgotten. Uh, one of my favorite moments of a Sunday morning service is what we just did, is that we get to stand up and we greet one another. And maybe because I'm extroverted uh, and the introverts are like, they want to run and hide, I think I'll go to the bathroom. Um, but this, but this is just, it's just so um, acknowledging one another, welcoming one another. I see you. We're on this journey of faith and discipleship together. It's just, uh, it's, it's good. I just, we could go another 10 minutes. Uh, so grace and peace to you on this Mother's Day. It's also Good Shepherd Sunday, and I think it's appropriate. Mother's Day, Good Shepherd Sunday. Um, this happens every uh, resurrection season, the fourth Fourth Sunday, typically after uh, fourth fourth Sunday of e of the Easter season, this Good Shepherd Sunday, and uh, what what we read earlier, what uh, Matt read earlier, is a small portion of a larger story uh, from John chapter ten. Last year we read that first portion as Good Shepherd Sunday, but I wanted to highlight a couple of verses um, that uh, from from last year's text. So. I think they'll come up. Maybe. There's one. Okay, so, yeah, so this is a very familiar text, uh, John 10.10, 10, one of my favorites, actually. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and life to the full. Next slide. Verse 11 continues. The next slide. There you go. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And finally, another one. Uh, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me. I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. So this is, this is immediately before our story this morning. Then we arrive in our passage, and we just want to walk through it uh, uh, together. First, it says, Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter. Okay, we'll get, get to that in a second. And Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. Okay? So first off, a couple things. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and it's the festival of dedication. Why? Well, not only is Jesus a, the good shepherd, he's also a good Jew. Okay? Um, what is the festival of dedication? Well, today it's known as Hanukkah. What does Hanukkah celebrate? It celebrates the liberation of Jerusalem and uh, of the temple from the Syrian king, uh, Antichus. Uh, he had desecrated the temple by building a, a, um, an altar to Zeus and even sacrificed pigs uh, on the temple altar and banned circumcision. So Hanukkah then, uh, the Greek word for Hanukkah, it's, it's, it's can be translated as renewal, renewal. This eight-day festival, which celebrates the, the day that Israel regained control of the temple uh, after the, the Maccabean revolt and reconsecrated it to the one true God of Israel. Okay? It also says that it's winter. It's winter. Just, just, it's a descriptive thing, or does it have any significance? It's winter. Well, temperatures in Jerusalem these days for winter are like this. December, January, next slide, January, there it is. 
So it's low of 47, high of 57. This is, so it's not as bad as central Illinois, right? Okay, looks like I'll go to Jerusalem next winter instead of Florida. No, okay. So yeah, so this is, these, this is, it's winter. It's winter at this time. So I just pictured Jesus and his disciples walking around in sandals. But they must have, they had to keep their feet warm. So maybe they wore socks and this is where the fashion started. I don't know, maybe. Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. I think we should wear sand. Okay. Um, but this winter season could also help explain Jesus walking around in Solomon's colonnade. Well, what is Solomon's colonnade? Also referred to as Solomon's porch. It's an exterior court of the temple area, which would have provided shelter from potential winter winds. All right, this was a public space on the south end of the temple, but also a place where the kings of Israel would render judgment. This is the backdrop. So, verse 24, the Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? How long will you keep us in suspense? For, now, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. To understand today's gospel, we need to know that um, John is writing to a community of, of, of the Jewish community who were divided. Three chapters earlier in John 10, it says, the, thus the people, the Jews, were divided because of Jesus. They were divided because some in the community had insisted that Jesus is, is actually divine. Um, those Jews who insisted on Jesus' divinity had, um, had been expelled from the synagogue. This would leave this group of people vulnerable to Roman persecution because they were no longer exempt uh, for uh, uh, towards uh, emperor worship. And then this phrase, tell us plainly, is intriguing to me, very intriguing. Tell us plainly. Is this statement about the words Jesus uses while he's speaking, it's like, tell us plainly. Don't use those parables, Jesus. Uh, don't, just, don't sort of give hints. Tell us exactly who you are, Okay. Uh, so tell us plainly, is that what they're after? Or uh, is this statement perhaps more about their or our ability to hear and to listen? To hear and to listen. Is it about what Jesus says, or is it our ability to understand? Maybe both, maybe a little from each column, I don't know. Uh, I tend to lean to the, to, to the latter, our ability to hear and to listen and to understand. In verse 25, Jesus answered, I tell you, I did tell you, I did tell you, but you do not believe. Some translations say you do not trust. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. So what does Jesus mean by this? Uh, is it, I've told you with words that I am, but you don't believe? Or, I told you that the works I do in my Father's name testify or witness about me, and you do not believe. So there's a subtle dis, uh, difference there. Is it words or doing? The subtle dis difference, I think the latter points to the works more than his words. Because this, to this point in John's gospel, we're in, we're in chapter 10 of John's gospel. Uh, only one time does Jesus speak so far in this gospel about who he is. And who does he tell? In chapter 4, he tells the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. 
That's the only person he actually uses words to sort of explain who he is to this point in the gospel. He, he does, however, speak of himself as the good shepherd. And the good shepherd, is this, this shepherd imagery, uh, is, was quite often used to reference the Messiah. Why? Because it points back to King David, who was a shepherd. So I, tell, I did tell you, but you did not believe. But to this point, we know in John, John's gospel, he has, he's told them very little with his words. Instead, it points to his works, what he is doing. This word that's translated testify, witness, the Greek word here, witness, um, it's an interesting concept in John. John uses this, this Greek word 10, or no, 33 times in his gospel. Between Matthew, Luke, and Mark, it's used twice. So witness and testifying is a very um, large concept for John. Witness, testify. But what, so what matters is his works is what, is what matters. Everyone surrounding Jesus should be clued in by this point, by his works. Um, they, the, you know, the reality that Jesus is the Messiah, by what he is doing. In Luke 7 and Matthew 11, John the Baptist had disciples. John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus, asking the question, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? And what does Jesus respond? Go back and tell John what I am doing. What's happening? What are the works? What are the works? Go tell him what I've been doing. So this brings me to the question that's on the screen. Is believing in Jesus simply an act of acknowledging his great works? Charles Kozar is a um, commentary guy. The works, tes the, the works testify to Jesus not because they are extraordinary and attention-getting and not because they offer conclusive proof of his messiahship, but because they are the Father's works. Yeah. These, these great works are only a matter, um, only matter because Jesus' relationship with his Father. Jesus and his Father had this relationship, this intimate relationship that's so close that what Jesus does and what God does cannot be separated. They're one. Therefore, Jesus' works are simply seen as the work of God. In verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. Is, I don't, is anyone else bothered by this first statement? But you do not believe because you are, you are not my sheep. Jesus, full of love, and mercy, and grace, inclusive, eh, but you're not my sheep. You know, like, it, I mean, it's kind of a jarring state. I mean, it's like a Heisman. You're not, you're not my sheep. This makes it sound like it's truly not up to them. Like, they, they couldn't believe it even if they wanted to. Those who believe are just lucky, and the others, maybe not so much. It kind of brings into a, a larger question, and, uh, you know, I've been here a little over two years now. I think you understand that I like a lot of questions. You know, I ask a lot of the questions of the text. 
this is a larger question. What's the nature of belief? What is the nature of belief? How much of our belief is dependent on God's agency? And how much of it is up to us? If, if, we, have, uh, if we have no say in our belief, right, uh, it, whether we're sheep or not, then can we hold the responsibility of such belief? Or does that belong to someone else? It goes back to that statement earlier, you know, is the statement, this tell us plainly, this, this idea of belief, uh, about Jesus' words that he's using while he speaks? Or is it a statement about our ability to hear or to listen? So there's this whole debate, uh, I think, that was really prominent in the 80s and the 90s, maybe the early 2000s, about this predestination and free will. Like, is it, does God choose? Do we have free will? Are we, are we sheep because he wants us to be sheep? And you know, what's our responsibility in all of it? The point of theology, though, you know, this kind of question, it's a, it's a deep, it's, it's a large question, isn't to resolve tensions inherent in the life of faith, but rather maybe to help us to ask better questions. So what I've experienced, you know, I was in youth ministry for 17 years prior to, um, our, you know, coming to Metamore Midnight, and one of the things that I experience is that um, uh, young people, more and more, even over the 17 years, aren't so much interested in that kind of debate or that kind of question, you know, predestination, free will, you know, that kind of thing. Um, what I experienced was a, a deep desire for an actual, authentic, intimate relationship with the, with the divine a genuine experience, a meaningful encounter with grace. And all of this, all of which makes me think that perhaps after wrestling with those large questions, you know, is it, is it up to us or not? Uh, this nature of faith, we can set them aside for a moment and just live with its, and live with its attention uh, in order to hear the words of promise that come from the scripture reading this morning. And what are those words of promise? I mean, those are interesting questions, but to get at the heart of the text, I think it's, it's the promise it brings. It's the gospel. It's the whole. I give them eternal life, that they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. My sheep listen to my voice. The sheep will follow my voice. They believe in their shepherd. So again, we can ask another question. Uh, do they follow because they believe? Or do they believe because they follow? I mean, I think the answer is yes. These are, these are large questions. Do, does our behavior, does our behavior shape our convictions, or do our convictions shape and lead to our behavior? I mean, this is it's, it's really simple to say chicken or the egg here, but it's it's deeper than that. All of this helps me make sense of what I think Jesus is saying in our text. Um, yes, those who believe in Him are part of His flock, and at the same time those who are following him are more likely to believe in him 
and who he is. We tend to separate believing and following. We tend to separate that. But I think that Jesus is, and, and a lot of modern psychologists would agree that, that actually those are not separable. They're the same. They ought to be the same. So continuing on, and I'll begin to wrap up here, but um, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. Throughout all of John, this fourth gospel, it speaks of this mutual indwelling of Jesus and his, and his Father. A mutual indwelling. This intimacy, this closeness of the two. But John also speaks of the mutual indwelling of Jesus and his community. The mutual indwelling. So in the end, you know, the request is, Jesus, tell us plainly. Tell us plainly. And he says that I, the I and the Father are one. He's saying he is God. And this led them to pick up their stones in order to kill him. Because they had the inability to hear and to listen and to understand. Which is why they were not his sheep. His sheep were the ones who saw his works, listened, leaned in, and they were attracted to, to, to Jesus as the good shepherd. The good shepherd. Um, really wrestled with how to kind of conclude today because sometimes when you read scripture, it just it doesn't need any help. It doesn't, it's just, just read it. And there's no commentary that just, nobody needs to say anything about it. Just read it. I think this is one of those. This is one of those. But as I think about Jesus, what he did, what he accomplished on earth, um, his life, uh, Jesus' works are birthed from his intimate relationship with his Father. I and the Father are one. Jesus' life witnessed to this reality. So, I mean, just as I look at this, it causes me to, what do my works witness to? What does it communicate to the world? Just sit with that for a minute. Jesus' works witness to the reality that he and his father were one. Man, I want that to be true for me. Do my good works tell the world plainly that I follow the good shepherd? questions
I really have nothing else. <laughs> those are it. Those are it. Those, those, it's just, it's that, these, these two questions, I mean, what does it communicate? God grants us the grace, you know. Sometimes we answer that question, it's like, ah, oh, I don't know what it communicates to the world. But God's, God's good. He's the good shepherd. Felix, that word good, it's, it's not necessarily like a moral thing. I think good speaks to the attractiveness. He is good. I'm going to follow this good shepherd because of how he lives, right? It's not like this. We get tripped up into, well, like, you know, the way I live, it's sinful or it's not good. No, it's, are you living a life that's good? That Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, follow Jesus. Is your life attractive? Will people trust in that? You know, is it good? Is it good? We're going to have uh, the opportunity to respond a little bit to that. Well, um, uh, have a response song, and then we're going to kind of just do an open, kind of an open mic about these two questions, and we'll begin to be able to share with one another briefly. So.